0: Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit amazon.com Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at popsugar.com slash juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today
1: democracy is demanded. It demands that you respect other people, give and receive and establish relationships based on trust and reciprocity, which is of course, what democracy is all about.
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, speaking the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are looking for an audio engineer who will be working on The Ezra Klein Show, on The Weeds. If you are a fan of these shows and you are a genius at engineering audio, you should apply by going to voxmedia.com. There's a careers tab there. Again, voxmedia.com. That said, this is a podcast that I actually think is pretty important. Martha Sinusbaum is one of our great living philosophers, and, and, and she's been working in recent years to put emotions back at the center of not just philosophy but of how we understand politics. Her new book is called Monarchy of Fear. And I think it's particularly important because fear is the dominant emotion of our political age. It is driving Donald Trump. It is driving reactions to Donald Trump and and understanding it, how it's generated in society, how it's generated in politics, how it's generated in individuals is necessary. It's a precondition, I think, to understanding why politics is what it is and feels the way it feels. The the way she does this in the book is pretty interesting. She she begins in infancy. She writes, the discrepancy between the very slow physical development of the human infant and its rapid cognitive development is in many respects a nightmare story. And, and, And she's saying there, we become able to know what we want and what we need long before we're able to do it. We are trapped in a body that doesn't work. Uh, For longer than we're trapped in a mind that doesn't understand, and that creates a a real sense of, of, of terror. And she goes on to say, we usually survive this condition, but we do not survive it without being formed and deformed by it. Fear, genetically first among the emotions, persists beneath them all and infects them all, nibbling around the edges of love and reciprocity. This is a hell of a way of understanding not just our politics, but our humanity itself. So, as always, you can email me Ezra at EzraKleinShow at vox.com. But I'm pleased to present this conversation with Martha C. Nussbaum. Let's begin here. Tell me about the idea, which is central to how you set up the book, that, that human life begins not in democracy, but in monarchy.
1: Yeah, what I mean is this that human babies are very different from the young of any other species in the sense that they know a lot that's going on, but absolutely unable to move to get what they need and what they want. And so there's this combination of helplessness with awareness that sets a very problematic trajectory for the rest of human life because what do you do if you see that you're not going to survive unless you get stuff but you can't do anything about it yourself? You've got to make slaves of other people. You've got to order them around saying, Wow, wow, you know, make them bring me what I need. And, of course, the other side of this is you also feel a deep need to be enfolded, embraced, cuddled by an all-powerful giver, caretaker, who will give you what you need. So there we have, in a nutshell, the two sides of absolute monarchy. A person who's ordering other people around. Freud calls the baby his majesty, the baby. And at this very same time, a person who absolutely is dependent on others and who needs the embrace of an absolute caretaker. So I think, you know, we have a hard time getting over that as life goes on. And as we get older, we do become capable of independence and of reciprocity and of having relationships with others that are not based on ordering them around. But that's an achievement and we have to learn how to do that. And it's constantly under siege from the primal fear that we remember and that gets augmented when we realize that we're going to die, which of course we realize later. And then we're afraid all over again and we want to be taken care of all over again. And so I think Human life is an oscillation, and it's always a difficult one, between this state that alternates between dependency and trying to boss people around, and a much more mature state where we can respect other people, we can give and receive and establish relationships based on trust and reciprocity, which is, of course... What democracy is all about. Democracy is demanding. It demands that you should be an adult and not a baby. And we're all babies
2: underneath. Uh, I, like that, uh, I like that idea. And I want to go back to a particular term you used, this primal fear. And this idea that as I read your book, what, what you're saying is that the fear is this emotion that lurks very, very, very close to the surface. And it takes uh, very little to activate it. And it takes, in some ways, a lot not to activate it, and we tend to rationalize our politics, but that much more of our politics than, than than we tend to understand needs to be understood as a question of whether or not we are eliciting people to act out of fear or not. Is is that a fair way of of, of putting the well, thesis? Well,
1: that's only that's partly fair, but I do not think we should be trying to get rid of fear entirely because actually there are things that it's right to be afraid of if you love your child then of course it's right to be afraid when the child is sick and to be motivated by that fear
2: I thought you were going to say snakes
1: well but i mean <laughs> snakes that's uh, that's absolutely hardwired we know that some fears like the fear of snakes is just hardwired but you know there are more rational fears fears when you love somebody, you love a child, you love your partner, you love a friend, you love your country, and there's a real threat. And then you should be afraid, and you should be motivated by fear. There are some people in the history of philosophy, including the Greek and Roman Stoics, and even Gandhi, who thought we should try to get rid of fear entirely. But they also understood that that means you don't love anyone. You just cut yourself off and you assume this detached imperviousness and you kind of sail through life without any love. Now, I don't want that. So then the problem is much harder because you have to separate the things that it's reasonable to fear from the things it's not reasonable to fear. And that means you can easily be misled and manipulated by political rhetoric uh, so we need this kind of self-examination that my book is trying to prompt all the more when the task is much more subtle.
2: Uh, I'm curious. There, there's been a huge upsurge in the past couple of years in in interest in the Stoics. Uh, I, I'm curious if, if, one, you've been tracking this and if, two, you have a, a view on, on why it is.
1: Well, I think the upsurge, it it always goes through history on and off. The Stoics in the Roman world, where they were most popular, they were like the, the politician's religion. Pretty much everyone thought that when your child dies, you shouldn't grieve. Cicero didn't think that, and when his daughter died, he had to defend himself against friends who said, hey, Cicero, you shouldn't be grieving so much. So, you know, through history, it goes on and off, and we find Adam Smith. Objecting in the 18th century to friends of his who said that we should be like the Stoics. And Smith was very impressed by the Stoics. He was drawn to their views, but he also thought that when our family is concerned, when it's our friends, when it's our country, we should have some very deep emotions, including some fear. So then, more recently, I don't know, the the revival of the Stoics comes usually from people who are. In a very, very difficult situation, Vice Admiral Stockdale wrote a wonderful book about the Stoics when he he talked in the book about how it helped him and his men get through the prisoner of war camp that they were in in Vietnam because it helped them preserve their inner integrity in a situation where they had terrible torment and they were facing torture. They knew that in some ways they were not going to be able to control what they told and what they didn't tell. But somehow, he said, through thinking about the Stoics, you could always preserve an inner integrity. So that was one major source, just war and the experience of war. But there are other things. There are people in the disability rights movement who have called for a return to Stoicism, thinking that, you know, again, if you have terrible pain, terrible illness, you can preserve integrity by thinking like the Stoics about how the only thing that's important is your own inner integrity. So so I guess I think the revival has many different sources, but one big common theme is... Terrible difficulty and terrible pain.
2: Well, what's interesting is the, the place where I, I've been noticing it is in Silicon Valley and and around some of the thinkers and and, and podcasts associated with it. Tim Ferriss is a big fan of the Stoics, and mm. um, a lot of tech leaders have begun talking about being very very influenced by, by Stoics. And and there seems to me to be some relationships to, to Zen Buddhism, which is also big in, in that in that space and in that community. But it, it always strikes me, and I find there to be a tremendous amount of wisdom in them and, and interest in them, but also that there's a, a mistrust of, of emotionality, uh, a mistrust of the sort of hard software that humans are operating on that is uh, possibly behind some of the interest in it in that, in that community. Yeah, and, and I always go back and forth on whether or not that makes them more attractive to me or less.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the Stoics are very worth spending time with because they are so complicated. There are some very good things that they say, and among them is their strong attack on retributive anger, which I think is an emotion we should indeed try to get rid of. We should keep the protest part of anger that works against injustice and says this should never happen again, but we shouldn't. Think, oh, now I'll heap pain on other people and that will make everything all right. So I think there's that deeply attractive part, but there's also this excess in the Stoics where they say, well, the only way to do that easily is to stop loving and to cut out grief, to cut out love, to cut out the more uh, central kind of fear where you're fearing for the ones you love. And so there, I think they're wrong and they, they go too far, but trying to sort that out and, and think with them is always worth doing.
2: One of the, this is taking me a bit about out order in my questions, but one thing that is interesting to me in the Stokes, but it's also interesting to me in your book is that in a lot of these cases, it seems to me the central question comes down to how do you govern and discipline your emotions? And in your book, there is this focus on the emotions that are positive within a a democratic republic and, and those that are like hope and those that are negative, like retributive anger. And it seemed to me that your book had a really optimistic sense that if the emotions could be examined, they could be managed. And... That has not been my experience of my my own life uh, as much as I would like it to be. And that's a step I didn't quite see – talk through so explicitly in the book, so I wanted to talk through it here. Given what you believe about the need to sort of choose an emotional set and an emotional toolkit to bring to to democratic life, what do you prescribe? How do you think about actually enacting that once you know that we should feel X-way rather than Y-way or it would be better to feel X-way rather than Y-way? what do you advise people to bring to the task of actually making that true in their soul and in their actions?
1: Well, of course, it helps if you've started young. And if your parents teach you retributive anger is a totally bogus emotion that doesn't ever do any good. But suppose you do feel an emotion that you decide is inappropriate. Let's take Constant racial anxiety. Hatred. Oh, sorry.
2: <laughs> well, no, let's just
1: take racial hatred. We know very well that most people in the United States at certain times in our history, maybe when I was a child even, felt a good deal of racial hatred. What did they do? Well, a lot of them, it was too late to change. I think with my father, it was too late to change. But fortunately, the society around him stopped him from acting on that emotion. It stopped him from lynching people. It stopped him from passing laws that subordinated African-Americans, and so it kept his actions in check. And maybe after a certain while, he decided, well, it's a good thing to keep my actions in check. I guess I think that I'm wrongly motivated, and even if I don't stop feeling this way, I keep my actions in check. Now then, of course, there's the next generation, and that is me, who kind of grew up thinking, well, we see that this is a problem, and we had we better not uh, learn to feel this way. So I think that's typically the way it goes. Now, with anxiety, of course, it's very difficult not to feel anxiety, but the Stoics did teach that you could, by disciplined meditation, you could get less of it. But I think the main thing is you learn what's worth caring about and what's not worth caring about, and you think about that hard, and you think, well, if some other country has attacked my country, then it would be worth being upset about that, be worth trying to figure out what to do about that, and maybe worth going to war if you are being attacked, and so on. But you don't do that just quickly without thinking, is this really the sort of thing that I should respond to, not just with feeling anxiety, but with action? You know, I think most parents understand this pretty quickly. Your child gets sick a thousand times and very quickly as a parent, you know, I just have to learn, is this the sort of illness that I really should be very upset about? Or is this just one of those childhood flus or fevers? And so I think it's that way also in the political life. We think, should think, what are the really big problems? What's worth taking action about? But, of course, we don't always think that way. We get hysterical just the way that sometimes as a parent we get hysterical. And then we act prematurely. We act hastily. And politicians know this. They know they can get us to be more deliberative. And they can get us to be more hysterical. And uh, this has been true ever since the Greek democracy. I give examples of how populist politicians manipulated the Greeks into irrational actions. And also how they could be calmed down, and we can see this also in our own time.
2: So this is, to me, the thing I struggled with in, in the book, and I'm trying to think about how to how to phrase it, even because I've had trouble even figuring it out to myself. I often think that there are two ways of looking at politics. There, there's a way in which people front load what we might call rational interests, right? Um, economic anxiety, healthcare needs, whatever it might be. And so we have this idea of politics as people making rational calculations about about their material needs or even their status needs and and then acting upon that basis. And then there's another idea about politics in which it's these, you know, system one, uh, ungovernable passions. It's tribalism. It is the group status even even before you recognize it. It's racial hatred, but you don't even recognize that that is what's driving you. And your book falls to me into an interesting middle place where – you're front-loading emotions, uh, which I often think of as the key element or, or key driver of, of that second kind of analysis. But you're framing them as quite manipulable. Uh, uh, there's a, a rationality to the way you approach emotions that is unusual in, in, in most of the literature in the space that I've read.
1: Yeah, but actually it isn't. It's not unusual at all in cognitive psychology the literature in cognitive psychology about compassion, about disgust, and so on, it shows it to be highly manipulable because all of these emotions have some idea in them, like the emotion of compassion has the idea that these people are suffering and that it's not their fault and that it would be good for that suffering to be relieved somehow. So the great psychologist who's worked for 50 years on this Dan Batson has constantly done experiments that manipulate the signals that people get about the magnitude of the suffering, about whether it's the person's fault, and so on. And so these things are manipulable. In um, another book of mine, I talk a lot about the New Deal and how Roosevelt set out to manipulate compassion because he understood that the reason that people didn't want to pass these programs for the social safety net was that they thought that poor people had caused their misery by their own laziness and bad behavior. And therefore, they didn't feel compassion because compassion, as philosophers have said ever since Aristotle, it does require the thought that this is not caused by your own bad behavior. So, he set out to produce Artworks, photographs, novels, and so on, all these unemployed artists in the WPA that showed poor people as dignified, as having a a tremendous magnitude of suffering, but making it clear in the way that this is presented, that this is something that hit them from outside. It was a catastrophe, not of their own making. And, you know, look what happened. The New Deal existed. It's being chipped away at now, and we have a lot of surveys that show that Americans still do tend to believe poor people cause their own misery and so on. So we need to keep dinning that in again and again. But, yeah, the emotions are manipulable. King, uh, Dr. King, talks quite a lot about how when people come to his movement They feel strongly retributive. They not only want to protest, but they also want payback. And he said their anger has to be purified and channelized. Now, what did he mean by that? He clearly meant that they have to get rid of this desire for retribution and substitute for that a spirit of active brotherly love toward everyone and some idea of common work and hope for a better future. And he did that. He was a marvelous genius of rhetoric and human influence. And uh, some of it was done in the form of exercises, like how are you going to behave in the next protest march right now? part of it was took the form of inspiring emotive rhetoric. In the book, I have a, an account of the I Have a Dream speech that shows just how insightful he was about how to turn someone's emotions from the retributive to the hopeful. So, you know, it was done and we can still do it.
2: How do you read the end of King's life in this respect uh, when— He began losing control uh, of – or losing appeal within his own movement to folks who were pushing a more retributive anger and a more militant stance and and in a wider culture that had said, look, we gave you a little. um, Wasn't that enough? When I read the sort of final years of the King's story, given what a genius he was, given how much he achieved, given the way he's been canonized in our time – there is something really sobering to me to read. I don't want to call it the despair because it wasn't that, but the walls he saw closing in on him um, in his final book, uh, in in Where Do We Go From Here? and how much frustration he had with um, the white community that had been his allies but would go no further and and also uh, how much fear he had that, the rising generation of of African-Americans was getting tired and fed up with uh, the wages of his approach and was going to go in a a direction that he couldn't follow.
1: Well, of course he didn't um, lose the war. He may have lost battles along the way, but he is still the inspiring force for people in my own city, Father Flager leading marches against gun violence and so on. And so you know it's the long haul. The same is true of Mandela, who of course has his opponents today, some youthful detractors and so on. But I think the inspiring message of Nelson Mandela is etched in history and will live basically as long as democracy lives. And I I guess in the case of King, since we're thinking, I'm thinking a lot about Aretha Franklin today. You know her wonderful grief-stricken singing at his funeral. It it was a message of tremendous emotion of grief, which, of course, is what my book uh, supports, that when we value someone or something, we should be ready to grieve in full measure, as indeed King did for the Birmingham schoolgirls. But, you know, Aretha Franklin was also a person of tremendous strength and hope, and her message was not rosy or, you know, it wasn't a sort of squishy, lovey message. It was a tough message. It was, we've suffered a great deal and we've been attacked. But in the end, it was a message of rising up with a very strong hopefulness. And I think you can't even hear her sing at Obama's inauguration without seeing that that sass, that fight, that hopefulness, That's not weak at all. So I guess I think, you know, you take the lumps that you get and you mourn for the losses that you have, but you keep going and and you just don't stop.
2: I think people feel that they understand the ways in which anger and fear, and I want to talk about this one more later, but 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 even hope act in our, our politics and our, our political community. But something your book focuses on in some detail is disgust. And I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the role that plays in your analysis.
1: Yeah. Now, disgust, when we just don't stop to think, we think that this is something that's purely hardwired. We just got to vomit at certain kinds of things. That, it turns out is not very true at all because the psychologist, Paul Rosen in particular, who've done this path-breaking work on disgust, show that it does actually have thought in it, that what you think you're smelling makes a difference as to whether it disgusts you or not. So if you're told that this smell is cheese, you're usually not disgusted. If you're told it's feces, you usually are disgusted. So even what's called primary object disgust has thought in it. It depends on what you think. And then the things that tend to elicit that kind of disgust are all what Rosen calls animal reminders. Reminders, that is. I think he shouldn't have just said animal reminders. He should have said something like mortality reminders, reminders of the decay and fragility and mortality of our own animal bodies. Because of course, we're not disgusted by strength or speed or beauty, lots of other things that animals have. But then what particularly interests me is that people don't stop there. That might already be problematic enough if you you kind of are disgusted by something that is you and it's an important part of you. That's kind of strange, kind of self-hatred that human beings are kind of in. But if we go beyond that to say this group of human beings is more animal than I am, I've risen above the animal, I'm clean, I barely have a body at all, and maybe it's not really an animal body, but these people, whether it's the lower castes in the Indian caste hierarchy, whether it's African Americans, whether it's women, whether it's gay men, particularly gay men, I think disgust rhetoric is usually used toward gay men more than toward gay women. This is a way of subordinating them and saying they're lesser people. They're not really people at all. They're more like animals. And we find this in every society. The forms it takes are different. So I have this research project with a bunch of colleagues where we study it cross-culturally in India and the United States and try to figure out how disgust for the lower castes in India is similar and also different from the kind of racial disgust that inhabited the Jim Crow South, where both involve, oh, we can't share drinking fountains, we can't share lunch counters and so on, but they're different in, in a variety of ways. So it's worth doing a lot more study of how this works, but we we certainly know that disgust is manufactured, it's taught. I mean, I walk into India and I just don't even know who's the lower caste, and it's so interesting that lower caste people know that, and they, they, they're so happy when some outsider comes in because then that outsider isn't part of that disgust system with them, and they don't even have a tendency to feel disgust. Uh, so, you know, it's it's taught, and it's part of a powerful engine of subordination. And so I think we need to understand that, and that is something that we can certainly change. If we bring people up to think that black bodies are similar to white bodies, uh, not more disgusting, not more animal, you know, children learn that very quickly, or rather they don't learn the other thing. So, uh, it's hard to unlearn once you learned it. There are stories about how Southern people who learned racial disgust, then they move north, and they actually do vomit when they're seated at a dinner table with people of another race. But if you don't learn it in the first place, you don't have to unlearn it. And so then I think that gives us a powerful message of what we need to do as a society. It is clear that disgust was a very powerful part of subordinating gays and lesbians in our society. I've written a whole lot about this and studied pamphlets, the the pamphlet literature that tried to whip up animosity to pass laws against same-sex marriage or earlier to keep the sodomy laws on the books. They always appeal to disgust, particularly describing anal sex as though it is disgusting. The mixing of Feces and blood and so on. So, you know, you see how this operates, and then you quickly see that this is something we better be attentive to, we better not do it, and we better say, as indeed the Supreme Court gloriously did say in Romer versus Evans, well, if that's the basis of a the law, then it doesn't even have a rational basis.
2: You know, something I was thinking about reading that that chapter of your book was Something Donald Trump is known for is, is having quite a strong disgust reaction. He's a very self-admitted germaphobe, um, likes things to be very orderly, very aggressively cooked, likes all steak well done, um, talks in terms of disgust a lot. He calls things disgusting constantly. He calls people, and including often women, um, and you talk a bit about this in, in your gender chapter, disgusting pigs. Um, he's been heard to say a number of times, you know, that... All the, the the refugees and immigrants from Haiti coming here, they have AIDS, which is a, a classic form that disgust yes, language yes. tends to take uh, against outsiders. And so I was curious, because this step wasn't quite taken in the book, if you see a role that disgust plays in, in Trump's politics unusually.
1: Well, there is a certain amount of research done by Rosen's students that tends to show that people on the right have a higher score – on what's called the D scale. I'm a little mistrustful of that for the following reason, that I think the D scale, as they construct it, doesn't distinguish carefully enough between a rational fear of danger and genuine uh, sort of phobic disgust. For example, the hand-washing thing. Now, I myself uh, am a germaphobe, but it's really not disgust. I don't find people's hands disgusting, but I'm a singer. And any singer you know, you ask that person, do you like shaking hands with a lot of people? No, because your livelihood, and well, it's not my livelihood, but it is my hobby, depends on not getting a cold. And that's a prime locus of cold. So if I go into a dinner after a lecture, and it's just standard that they expect you to shake hands with everyone at the table and then sit down to eat— Either I find some tactful way of not shaking people's hands or I go uh, use some hand sanitizer. So, you know, I don't think that's disgust at all. It's just prudence. I also think that when they say that um, thinking about sex with animals, do you have a negative view of that? And then they, if the person says, I have a negative view of people having sex with animals, they impute that to disgust. I am an animal rights activist. I think sex with animals is cruelty. And I have a moral objection to it, and it's not discussed. It's a, I think, a rational moral objection to people using animals as tools. So I think the D scale is it, it's got lots of different things in it, and therefore, I don't trust the results of experiments using that scale. But in any case, that's what they claim that they've found. And I do think, quite apart from agreeing with Trump about the hand-shaking thing, I I do think the Indian custom of namaste is a beautiful way of greeting and honoring a person that that has no um, tendency to infect self or others. But in any case, the the thing that uh, is clearly indicative is the way he talks about women's bodies, which really does show disgust again and again. It's what he perceives as excess flesh, he finds disgusting. What he perceives as some sign of a, like they go to the bathroom, like Hillary taking her bathroom break during the, the debate. What he perceives as some sign of blood, like somebody might be having her period, he suggests. And then that the journalist who he thought she had had a facelift and he thought she was bleeding. So all of those are genuine disgust, what I call projective disgust. They are not a rational fear. And yeah, there is something pretty striking about that. And uh, to me, I don't like that. I think I wouldn't like to have a friend who had that tendency. Do I think that makes him per se a bad president? Well, if we find that the disgust is concentrated in certain areas that are also areas of group subordination as with women, yeah, I mean, it does worry me. There is a kind of uh, phobic misogyny in Trump. I don't think that he has the belief that women are inferior. There are lots of reasons to think he doesn't have that belief, but he has some kind of phobic reactions that are actually quite troubling. This episode is brought
0: to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline
2: Talk to me then about, about the question of anger. Uh, anger, I think, is a definitional emotion of this era. It's on both sides. It is felt also by both sides from the other side, right? They often feel angry, but they really feel anger coming towards them. When is anger healthy, and and, and when is it unhealthy?
1: Okay, well, let's just start with an account of it, to, just to use to, to clear our heads. Uh, Aristotle says, anger is a painful emotion that involves the thought that someone else has wronged you or someone or something you care about and that the wrong is serious and that it was wrongfully and not just accidentally inflicted. Now, let me just pause for a minute. That's not the whole definition. But those parts, I think, can go wrong in specific and local ways. We might get the wrong person. We might get the wrong magnitude of the offense, like if someone forgets my name, Aristotle actually gives that example of something that makes people very angry. But probably it's not that important. It's not worth getting that upset about. Then there are things that are perhaps accidental and not wrongfully inflicted. And again, people might get angry and they might be wrong about that. But all of those things, if the beliefs are are right— then that kind of thing is okay. It's right to get upset if somebody wrongfully assaults or damages something you care about. But then Aristotle adds, and anger also includes a pleasant hope for payback or retribution. Now, I think, actually, that's not true all the time, and I'm going to say more about that in a sec, but It's very often true, and psychologists who study anger right away, they do say, you know, that is actually true. You might not want to go take revenge yourself. You might just want the law to inflict pain on the wrongdoer or maybe divine justice, or as often happens, you may just want life to do it, like if you're getting divorced. It's very common if you're very angry at your ex to just wish that that person's life will go very badly in the future. That that second marriage will be a dismal failure. And you kind of find yourself thinking, oh, that's payback. Then he's got his comeuppance. So that payback wish, I think that's always a very bad thing. Because what you're really trying to do is to change the past. And you can't change the past. So people whose child has been murdered And they're finding themselves wishing, I want that person put to death. But they kind of think in a fantasy, that's going to bring my child back to life. Only, of course, it won't. So it's confused. And it tries to change the past. And there's this idea, oh, nature will be balanced again if they get proportional payback. So it's full of confused thinking. But unfortunately, a lot of our criminal justice system is based Unjust just this confused thinking. We think all the time, oh, that criminal deserves proportional payback. So that's the part that I don't like. So, so I point out that there is a kind of anger, which I, I give this name transition anger to, which involves not trying to change the past, but rather turning around to face the future, where the content of the anger is, that's really bad And that should not happen again, where we protest, but we don't seek payback. We seek instead to change the future. Now, we might still use punishment, but we would use punishment if we do to deter the person from doing the same thing again or deter other people from doing the same kind of thing. So I think that kind of protest anger is also very common, and we can see it in the way parents treat their children. They get very angry when the children have done something wrong, but their anger typically has the protest part without the payback part. They don't typically think, now you got to suffer for what you've done, and I'm going to whoop you, and so on. At least right now, parents don't think that way. They think instead, what shall I do to fix that child's future? This was really bad, and it shouldn't happen again, but the real question is, what can we do about this? And I think that's really what um, Dr. King was trying to achieve in his movement was to kind of channelize, as he put it, the anger of the people that was initially focused on retribution toward that kind of hopeful fixing. Now let's fix this. Let's see what we can do about this. So, so that's what I call protest without payback.
2: So, so this to me is where the look at emotions can achieve a, a sort of Spockish quality that I want to push on a little bit. You, you said earlier in that answer, you gave the example of a family whose child was killed and wants the murder put to death. And you said that on some level they feel this will bring the child back. And I heard that, and, and I read it when you you said it in the book, and I thought maybe they don't. Maybe they just feel to them that would be justice. It would be, as you say, payback, but it would make them feel better. And I, I think that there's a, a move in the argument there of, of course, it won't bring the child back, right? It's not going to do that. But it is the case. There's something in a lot of human beings where they feel better to see their 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 enemies fall, right? There, you know, it's the the line from Conan the Barbarian to to drive your enemies before you and and hear the lamentations of their women. And on the one hand, I could see there being a question about is there a path to transcending that feeling, transcending that human programming – but it seems here that what's being offered is more of a, of a logical argument that you just shouldn't feel that way. But people do. It drives a tremendous amount of, of not just our politics but our lives, wanting your, your ex's <laughs> next partner to not be uh, as good as you or for it to not go well if you felt wronged by them. And so I guess my question for you here is what are the implications of this analysis? If it is nevertheless a case that payback makes people feel better, that's why they want it, it feels a little bit here like what you're telling them is it doesn't serve your purpose but they're saying no 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 it does my purpose was just to feel better my purpose was that I enjoyed the pleasure it gave me to see them to see them fall
1: Well I actually think you're underestimating the prevalence of this kind of confused thinking about how Oh, the cosmic balance will be restored. And what is proportional payback if not the payback that counterbalances the loss of the child? I owe it to my child to put this person to death. And all people talk in these confused ways all the time. But but okay, suppose in some cases they don't. They just want to feel better. Well, I first of all, I think that for an individual to live that way, to think that now going forward, living my life, I'm going to focus on doing harm to other people because that makes me feel good. I think that's a pretty bad way to live. When you've been damaged, what you should really, what you get a lot out of is in the future is to fix the damage. Now, what is that damage? If the damage is to your family life, well, let's just think, what can we do to make my life better for myself and for others. One very good movement that responds to that idea is the Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They didn't think oh, now we're just going to inflict maximum suffering on drunk drivers. They thought we're going to have a movement that gets the state to be more proactive in getting those drivers off the road. That puts in breathalyzers in the cars so they can't start the car. In other words, it's a proactive movement to stop that kind of suffering for others. And that's a great way to live your life going forward if you've had a terrible loss. And I think people do that also all the time. Like if they've suffered a, a rape, they get an Involved in a, in a rape crisis center or they try to help other women who have suffered. That's what the Me Too movement is all about in a way. It's mutual support out of one's own pain, and that's very productive. So I guess the first thing I'd say about your person is that person isn't doing anything that's very productive. But then the second thing I'd say is, since I am in the law school, it's not something the criminal justice system should dignify, sure, There are lots of things that make people feel better. Killing makes some people feel a whole lot better. Rape makes some people feel a lot better. And, you know, in the law, the protest, oh, it made me feel better, cuts no ice, at all. The question is, is this the best thing the law can do considering the needs of the whole society? And I'm certainly prepared to argue that the retributive attitude in the criminal law does not do this. It's behind the the terrible swell in mass incarceration in our society. It's always been the main prop behind the death penalty because the death penalty does not deter And there are lots of other things we can say against it. So the only thing that's going for it is this deeply ingrained reactive tendency that you're describing, which sure, you know, people who are brought up in that, a lot of them are going to feel that. But that doesn't mean the law should take that seriously.
2: I want to talk now about something you say towards the end, which is that there is also this possibility to choose hope. That in a world where, where fear is always close at hand, hope is also a choice. And, and I wanted to start because here's a place where I think you offer a very clear path. How does one choose hope? What, 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 is, what is the choice being offered?
1: Okay, well, I first of all want to, you know, call out and uh, praise a young philosopher, Adrian Martin, who's written an excellent book on hope. I don't agree with it in all respects, but I just want to say what great work she did and uh, say that I think everyone should look at her book. Starting with the Stoics, fear and hope have been thought together, and I think that's right because they notice that where you have reason to fear— There's also reason for hope because both depend on a significant uncertainty about things you care about. Now, what Martin's book points out is it's not a matter of the probabilities. You can have fear when your probability of success is pretty high, I think most of my law students are very bright people and they still have a lot of fear when they're going for their off-campus interviews as we've been doing them this week. And my brilliant research assistant has said, I feel very nervous, you know. Uh, You know, and yet his probability of success, I could say, is really, really high. And we can also have hope where the probability of success is quite low. Say a relative has what's called terminal cancer, I can still hope. Now, the difference, and this is what Martin is absolutely right about, is in how it makes you act. So, Stoics think we should get rid of both fear and hope because both depend on uncertainty, and I'm not with that for reasons I've already given you. But let's ask, what is the difference between the two? Now, the hopeful person is going to take action. And it's going to be different from the action the fearful person takes, probably. Think about the relative who's ill. If you have hope, you're going to scour the internet. You're going to look for alternative treatments. You're going to look for second opinions. If all you have is fear, you're just flailing around. And you don't know what you're going to do next. So hope is productive of good actions. Now then, we have Immanuel Kant 18th century philosopher, who said, well, if it's the case that we're obliged to act to improve the lives of other people, he thought we were, and I agree with him on that, and if you probably aren't going to do that unless you have hope that this is going to make a difference, which I also agree with, then whether or not it comes easy to you, you're obliged to put yourself into the shoes, as it were, of hope and take up these hopeful attitudes. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, it's kind of a matter of practice. We can get used to seeing a glass as half empty. We can get used to seeing it as half full. And it's sort of like that. Focus on the hope, and then you'll motivate yourself to take hopeful actions. I happen to be a temperamentally hopeful person. I'm sure this has a lot to do with my upbringing and and just the sort of person I am. But I think you can get yourself into that frame of mind by your own efforts more often than not. And then I talk about what are some of the things you might do if you want to put yourself in a more hopeful frame of mind? Well, you could join a protest movement. You might join a movement that's trying to make things better. You might join a political campaign and boy, right now in run up to the midterm elections, there's so much going on. and I'm so happy to see this surge in activity, which of course is a sign of hope in people who are getting involved in politics, who are fundraising, who are working for candidates. And I think that's a a very good way to get hope. You join your lot to that of some candidate who's working to make things better. You can also join a, a church or a synagogue. And in my synagogue, I think it is a school of hope because we have lots of projects like food garden that brings fresh produce to people in the inner city who don't have access to fresh food. So that's a practice of hope. You think, well, people's lives could be actually quite a lot better if they have decent fresh produce to eat. And so there are a hundred things. And I do think that getting involved in the arts is one of the biggest ones because that helps you see the insides of other people in a more generous and magnanimous way, and that can transform all all of your actions. So there are just a lot of things, and what works for you is what works for you. And I'm not telling any person what to do, but I think there are just a lot of things one can find to do that will produce more hope than fear.
2: And you do have one more, uh, I don't want to say mandatory suggestion, but but you do propose having a, a three-year national service program for young Americans in the future as part of the argument that practicing the art of citizenship is part of practicing hope?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems in practicing hope in the United States is that kids just don't have any idea what life is like far from where they are in terms of class and race. We're so de facto segregated by both class and race and very often the two together that young people, unless there's some energetic push, they don't get out of that bubble of privilege and they just don't even know. So they can't practice hope or they can't imagine anything because they don't know what the reality is. So what I think national service would do, and it has been practiced in, in Germany, which gave an option between a two-year military service and a three-year civil Service it doesn't exist any longer. I think that's a pity. But anyway, we we can do this if we have the political will to do it. Because there's so much work all over this country that needs doing. A lot of elder care, child care. But the main payoff is that, like military service, but without having to go to war and reinstitute a draft, it puts people in contact with other people who are very, very different in class. And race. And it's an opportunity for us because we live our lives in bubbles. And that's, a, I think, a huge problem in democratic politics.
2: I think that's a nice, helpful place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always use to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to recommend three books that connect with my heroes that I've mentioned. The first is The Prison Letters of Nelson Mandela. This just came out, but you can get it quite quickly. I got it within one day by ordering it and I'm reading it hungrily because he is one of my heroes, just to learn about the daily grind, the horrible routine of that prison on Robben Island, which I've actually visited, but just to know from his words what it was like when you had to write 10 times before you got your eyeglasses fixed and so. And yet, the courage, the generosity, the decency, of that man as he endured 27 years of imprisonment. So that surely is a lesson in hope. Second, about Dr. King, Dr. King's work has often been examined as a political figure, but there's a new collection about Dr. King as a philosopher. And I think this is really, really important because he was, I think, a major philosopher. It's a collection of essays called To Shape A New World, The Political Philosophy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It's edited by Tommy Shelby, who's in the philosophy department at Harvard, and by Brandon Terry. I've got an article in it, but anyway, it's got a lot of interesting articles on different aspects of his philosophy, And now the third, which might seem to be descending from the sublime to the slightly comic, but but it isn't. It's somebody who I, I think is a hero in our time, and I want to mention that he's my favorite presidential candidate for the Democrats in the next presidential election. It's the autobiography of John Hickenlooper, the governor of Colorado. It's called the opposite of woe, my life in beer and politics. So I say it's comic because he he is a very funny person, and I think that's part of his greatness, actually. But Hickenlooper was, in fact. uh, He was a scientist first, but then he was a beer entrepreneur who made a fortune as a craft brewer, so that's where the beer comes from. But it's an autobiography that talks about overcoming great grief and, and a kind of emotional frozenness that came from the fact that his father died when he was very young and he learned to be a stoic. He learned to seal himself off from other people. But of course, in politics, that was a a tremendous liability because if you're going to relate to people, you have to be able to open up. So it's about how he learned to be a very fine politician and bring Denver out of bankruptcy and to provide kind of light rail and therefore more employment opportunities for rural people in the in the state as governor. But anyway, he he learned this as a very hard task of self-examination and work on himself in conjunction with his second wife, whom he praises greatly for her work in this this kind of self-labor. Uh, so anyway, I just think this is a politician that is the sort of person we need, somebody with self-knowledge and humor and the ability to work on himself and to be humble about himself besides having good economic ideas and, and a good take on what will bring people together.
2: If I could, you, you rarely hear a non-Coloradan who's a diehard looper 2020er at this point. What, what did he do to win you over?
1: Well, my daughter and son-in-law live in Colorado, so I hear a lot of about him for that reason, and uh, my son-in-law actually gave me that book as a birthday present, and I thought, well, what am I supposed to get from this book? But I was absolutely hooked on it, and I then I studied his record, and I think it is the kind of record we need, a record that cares about inequality but then does something practical like light rail to, to really change things. And also, of course, he's famous for working with the other side and working with Kasich on health insurance and having a rational idea about a bipartisan bill that could break through the the logjam. I admire him for that reason, too. But in any case, I, I don't know if he'll run. I just hope he will. And who knows? Maybe if enough people ask him, he will consider doing it.
2: Martha C. Nussbaum, thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, Ezra. I really, really enjoyed this. This was a great interview.
2: Thank you to Dr. Nussbaum. Uh, Thank you to all of you for tuning in. To My producer, Jillian Weinberger, and engineer Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week.